Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Okay. Hi, my name's Alan. Uh, I live in Maryland. I'm a gratefully recovering sexaholic, and my life is a miracle. That's that's not an exaggeration. Uh, This disease has made me homeless on several occasions. I have done things for which people are and should be put in prison. Um, I am truly, completely powerless. I am a robot sexaholic. I am totally programmed to lust, and only God can save me. I never say, I've been sober since such and such a day. I say, by a miracle, God has kept me sober since December 26, 2011. I have to be kept sober. I do not stay sober. I just, I don't do sobriety. I can't. I've been a sexaholic since I was eight years old. That's when I began compulsively masturbating. I'm 63. My generation went through puberty older than people do nowadays. And that meant that I was actively compulsively masturbating for many years before I was able, before I hit puberty. Uh, I remember the first day I masturbated and uh, and something came out, I thought, my God, I've broken something. I've done this too often. I have broken something inside myself. I was all freaked out. That's how little I knew. I wish I could communicate to you the person I was when I came into these rooms. That was 1991. I never looked anybody in the face. I looked down at my shoes. I was deeply ashamed of myself in all areas of my life, not just this one. I hated myself. I actually thought I was evil, not just bad, not just not good enough, but evil, the way Satan is evil, okay? I, uh, that's gone now. My higher power has relieved me of that terrible burden. And it is a burden. It's, 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 to me, what I have found is that is the burden at the core of my disease. I had that before I had sexaholism. I had it as a result of uh, my mother incesting me when I was a child. And I thought that I seduced mommy. Uh, therefore, I was the one to blame, and therefore I was evil. 
after she did that, uh, she cut off all emotional connection between us. She was um, blacked out on alcohol at the time. She never remembered doing it. She was actually a good person who did a terrible thing when she was very drunk. And uh, the only way her subconscious, I'm convinced this is true, knew to protect her and me from her doing it again was to not ever be close to me again. So around my sixth birthday, A, my mother masturbated me, and then B, she stopped being my mother. I continued living in a house with this person, this body, this face that had been my mother. She continued fulfilling the office. She cooked for me. She took me to medical appointments. She bought me clothes, but there was no more touching. There was no more sitting in her lap. There was no more love, period. It just stopped. And I felt tragic loss ever since. The other thing I had was a deep, resentful hatred against her and a determination to make her suffer by making my life miserable, and then she would feel guilty for it. And I was very good at keeping that determination. So I got introduced, that was when I was six. When I was eight, I got introduced to masturbation by a kid who lived next door. And I was compulsive with it from the start. Every night I had to do it to go to sleep. Um, Two years later, we moved from where we lived to another place in another country. And uh, I remember hoping that the move would give me the power to stop masturbating. We weren't religious. I didn't have anybody telling me that masturbation was bad. But... I wanted a geographical cure at the age of 10. And of course, we know from AA, geographical cures don't work. Oh, and the timer, if you could uh, give me a heads up five minutes before the end. Thank you. Um, And uh, so I just, I was, I was just an extremely lonely kid, you know. Uh, felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. That's the story of my life. And I would add to that, deeply ashamed. Um, There was always a seductive element to this for me. Even as a young child, I tried to get other kids to play doctor with me. It, It was not, oh, let's play doctor. You know, it was not, innocent discovery you know it was seduction i was trying to get them to do something sexual with me and um and the the two kids that i asked they both said the exact same thing oh we belong to such and such a church my older brother older sister told me we don't do that So they had some kind of spiritual protection that followed them around that I didn't have. Um, Another hallmark of my disease is the way it keeps progressing. And when I'm taking somebody to the steps, when we do step one, I have them look at three points for every sexual event in their life. Powerlessness, 
which has two sub points. Once I start, I can't stop, and I can't keep from starting. That's like, you know, the twofold nature of the disease and alcoholism. Unmanageability, which for me, there's internal and external unmanageability. External is catching a, an uncurable disease, getting busted, the wife leaving you, you know, whatever. And then there's the internal unmanageability, which is vastly, in my life, vastly more painful. That's the self-hate. You know, my self-hate, I, I would do things like go outside and pound my head violently against a concrete lamppost. I was so angry at myself, you know. Um, there were times when I deliberately risked catching HIV because I wanted to die. There was a time in Los Angeles when I was out looking for a room to rent, and I heard some kids running, and I turned around, and these three teenagers from some gang, I guess, ran up to me. One of them pointed a gun at me. Well, two kids were running up, and there was a, another guy in a car facing them in the street. One of the guys on foot pointed this gun at me and said, give me your money. And I said, oh, just shoot me. And we stood like that for a second, and he said, give me your money. And I spread my arms. I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm not kidding. Just go ahead and shoot me. He gave this little laugh. They got back in the car and drove away. And I said to God, because one thing in my life, I've talked to God out loud constantly. I said, God, I wasn't bluffing. I meant it. I wanted that guy to shoot me. And that's when I realized I totally had to change my life. I started getting a lot more serious about my recovery. That was where I met um, S.A. was in California. And Roy was at the first meeting. And uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, my first sponsor in S.A. Oh, well, before I jump to that, <clears throat> and when I was 20, by the time I was 20, my disease had seriously progressed. I had seduced uh, a male friend uh, who had been my friend since grade five. Uh, I'd had some girlfriends, uh, and one of whom I, I had abused badly. And, um, oh, yeah, I won't give you the details of things that I did because they'd be very triggery for some people, but I'm a, I'm a sick sexaholic. I'm not a guy who sat in his basement and looked at porn too much, you know. When I was 23, I had my first anonymous sex with a, with a man in a public bathroom. Uh, and that soon, I'm just like Roy. Once I cross a boundary, I'm not free to not cross it again. Uh, after that, for me, it was public bathrooms and parks. On two occasions, it was stairwells and buildings. So, you know, you're surrounded by concrete. That's a nice romantic place. Uh, you know, um, bathrooms, you know, the lovely aphrodisiac smell of ammonia pucks. You know, this is a very degrading way to live, especially if, like me, you're actually straight. I am straight, you know. Uh, but women are just too much damn work, right? Gay men, they're a lot easier. Um, 
And so after a while, yeah, I was getting suicidal. And I went looking for recovery and sobriety, and thank God I found it. My first sponsor in SA introduced himself this way. I'll change his name. Hello, my name's Dave. I'm an offender and a sexaholic. And then he would shake your hand. That was my introduction to SA. That was the first SA member I met. That meeting did uh, a newcomer's meeting before the meeting, and that was and you know you had to pass muster at the newcomers meeting to stay for the meeting and this guy who just announced he was an offender shook my hand and i thought i'm in the right place you know i was finally home you know these people were as sick as i was i had been to another 12-step fellowship that deals with sexual addiction and it just didn't work for me. A, there, just, there wasn't much sobriety in the rooms. Uh, but B, I just didn't hear that kind of honesty. I'm an offender and a sexaholic. Hi. And he always introduced himself that way. And he had done lots of work in ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, because he was an adult child of an alcoholic. And that deep emotional work gave his recovery a depth that I often don't see. The best sponsor I had in SA also had done deep work in ACA. And he's a walking uh, 24-hour chip. Seriously, he, he just, he lives and breathes sobriety. As somebody else I know says about him, you sit down with him and talk for an hour, and you get up, you're more sober than when you sat down. Um, I have a deep deep respect for this disease. It can get me to do anything. There's no perversion, no atrocity on this earth that this disease could not get me to do eventually because it cooks the frog slowly. If, if you know that, that whole thing about you can put a frog into warm water and gradually turn the heat up very gradually and you can boil that frog because it doesn't have the nerves that we have to tell it that the temperature is growing up quickly. And that's what happens with me. The disease cooks me slowly. So the first thing when people are doing their step work with me is the powerlessness. The second is the unmanageability. And the third one is the progression. And that's what I'm talking about now. Um, there's always progression. A junkie always has to up the dose to keep getting the same high. For me, that means doing it more and doing it nastier. Doing it more, when I first started out at eight years old, I would masturbate for two minutes, have a climax, go to sleep. At the end, when I was in my uh, late 30s, almost 40, uh, I was out there cruising all day and into the night and, and sometimes going home with people, people I wasn't even that interested in. You know, I was just living it. Uh, so I completely did the doing it more. Doing it nastier, again, I'm not going to give you details, but, you know, here, here's, something, here's, here's something that's useful that I found helpful for me and helpful for my sponsees. Think of the, the one thing that you, one of the things that you've told yourself you'll never do, 
oh, I'll never do that, right? We all have them. Why did I feel it necessary to tell myself that? Because I saw that in my own mind, and it scared me. So I drew a line in the sand, and I said, over that line, I will not go. We know from Roy's story, I know from my own bitter experience, every line I draw, I go over. The line is there for a reason. It's because I want to go there. And I can't admit to myself that I want something that sick, that wrong. Okay, so that's problem, solution. I am joyous, happy, and free today. I have never had a life this good. Every night I I go to bed and I can name out loud the people whose lives I made a difference in that day. Sometimes a very significant difference. Marriages that are doing better because I'm helping the husband stay sober. That's not my job. I'm not here to save marriages. But that, that sponsor that I mentioned, who's a walking 24-hour chip, he doesn't know it, but he saved my marriage. Well, actually, no, he does know it, because I, I gave him a letter telling him that. My wife never knew, you know, that I stopped doing some of the crazy things I was doing, because he told me. Stop doing it, you know. Um, my life now. I laugh. Remember I was talking about how I, when I walked into rooms, I was this grim, awful, depressed person. I shared a lot and to no purpose. I had no recovery to share, no hope. My shares were long and depressing, but I shared anyway. And, uh, I never laughed ever. And then two years ago, all of a sudden, God gave me my sense of humor back. It's, it's the most wonderful gift. It, it's funny. It's not mentioned in any literature, but I need to say of all the gifts I've received, one of the best is the ability to laugh at myself. I always took myself way too seriously, even as a child, even as a little kid. I couldn't laugh at myself. And now I do all the time. I'm absurd. <laughs> The day, I'll never forget the day I got my sense of humor back. I lay down to take a nap. I said, God, please just help me not take myself so seriously. When I woke up, I thought of something about myself that was funny, and I just started laughing out loud, uproariously. That whole day, I never went anywhere. I stayed in the house, and I saw some flies, and I said, oh, no, there are flies in the house. Western civilization will fall. <laughs> it still gets me, you know, just absurd things. I'm absurd. And that's fine. That's fine. You know, all sorts of things are fine today that weren't fine before. My feelings are coming back. One of the most wonderful things that happened to me in the course of my Recovery was, remember I told you my mother stopped touching me. I knew I needed that healed. I found a woman. Uh, she was uh, very heavy, uh, who was willing 
to hold me in her lap for 90 minutes at a time, four times a week. And we did that for eight months. She held me in her lap the way a mother holds her baby. There was no lust in this. There was no sex. A, she was a person I would never be sexually drawn to. And B, she was a 40-year-old virgin. When she was 16, she had gotten the, the idea that Jesus wanted her to wait. And she was a very faithful, very loving woman. And so she had waited. She had just been completely saving herself for marriage. So she brought that spirit into the relationship. That was the fact that I just wasn't drawn to her. She gave me the love my mother couldn't give me. That was 20 years ago to this day. That love I still carry within me. She wrote it into me. She taught me the difference between love and sex, which I didn't know. I owe my life to her. My life, my sanity, and my soul. We ended up getting married. I never wanted to be married in my entire life. I never wanted to be married. There was no way I could trust a woman that much. This woman I could trust. My inner child opened his heart to her completely. Loved her. We got married. It was the beginning of my life. That relationship and that bonding, that unconditional mother's love came to me because I put my sobriety and my recovery above everything. Everything. I traveled 5,000 miles and more. I crossed the country twice. I did absurd things, things I would never recommend anybody else do. But I was desperate, desperate not to become the monster that I saw myself becoming. And God has brought so many wonderful things to my life as a result. Today I have a life. Before I had a living death. I'm grateful for my life today. I have friends in SA like I've never had friends in my life. All my friends are in SA. All of them. People in SA understand me in a way my family will never understand me. My family can't understand me, and it's absurd to ask them to, because they don't have the background. They just don't, they're not qualified to. It's not their fault. You have to have had this thing the way I've had it to understand me, to understand the insanity, the self-hate, the, the desperation, and then the joy. And the last thing I want to talk about is my relationship with my higher power. That is the most important thing in my life, along with my sobriety. My relationship with my higher power is better than I ever thought it would be. I always talked to God, and I always got messages from God. But I didn't really trust God, oddly enough. And in the last three years... God finally opened himself to me in a way I never thought he would. I realized I did a big porn binge as part of this sobriety. I had an earlier sobriety uh, of 15 years, and I lost it because I got cured and I stopped coming to meetings. And, of course, 
I, I went into relapse. I came back. I got sober again. I've been sober just over seven years now. One year into this sobriety, I did a big porn binge without touching myself. And after that, I talked to a guy and he said, Larry, you, it's not that you don't trust God. It's that you are determined. And that, that was my old name. <laughs> I'm now Alan. Um, you are determined not to give God a chance to prove himself. And I realized that was true. So I started praying every day. God, please open my mind and heart to you as you know yourself to be, not as I imagine you. And he did. The first thing he did was I got an intuition to do this assignment, write a list of all the times when I directly felt his presence. And there were four of them. And they had these things in common. All those times I felt loved, I felt safe, and I felt at peace. I never feel those things. I've spent my life looking for those three things. So that taught me God is love, safety, and peace. He's not all these crazy theological things my church had taught me. God, in revealing himself to me through my direct experience, is love, safety, and peace. And then he told me, write a list of every time he's acted in my life, whether I knew it at the time or not. And that was a much longer list that went on for pages. And I could see how ever since I was a young child, he'd been looking after me. One time, he saved my life. I was out cruising in the city, and I saw this porn theater. It was midnight. And I knew that there would be gay men in that porn theater doing the things that I wanted somebody to do for me. And God said to me clearly, okay, you can do this, but if you go in there now, you will end up regretting it the rest of your life. And I said, I hear you, I believe you, but you know me. If I try to walk away now, I am going to just turn around and run there faster than you can stop me. So what are we going to do? He said, okay, do exactly what I do and nothing else. Take your left foot and put it in front of your right foot. I did that. And he said, okay, now take your right foot and put it in front of your left foot. I did that. Okay, now take your left foot and put it in front of your right foot. And one step at a time, he walked me away from the porn theater. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but those places have a sort of spiritual zone around them. When I'm in that spiritual zone, you know, however many yards it is, I don't have free will. I will go in. I'm a slave of lust. I'm a slave. But once I'm outside of that zone, I have free will again. He walked me outside that zone of control, and I was able to go away. It was 20 years before I realized what was going on that night. It was 1980, and it was the winter of 1980, and it was San Francisco. They weren't calling it AIDS yet. At that point, I think they were just calling it GRID, gay-related immunity disease deficiency. But the men in that room 
were passing it to each other hand to hand, and most, if not all of them, were dead within two years. That would have been my fate. God saved my life that night. My hope for everybody listening to this call is that you can meet a wonderful God of your own understanding. The God I came in with could never have gotten me sober because I didn't really trust him. The God I have now, I trust implicitly. I love and I want to be one with all the time. My greatest prayer for other people is to be one with this God. You know, it it says in the big book, pray for other people the thing you most want for yourself. Uh, That used to be, oh, I hope they become a famous poet or a famous actor. No. Now, it's, I hope they become one with this God that I have met, because that's the thing I want most for myself. And I think God has something he wants to say, and this may feel weird to you, but he occasionally talks through me just a tiny bit. I love you. I love sexaholics more than you can ever imagine. I do not despise you. I love you. You suffer from one of the greatest burdens this earth has to offer you. It can be the goad that brings you into relationship with me such as few people can know. That's been my experience. God is bringing me into relationship with him I never would have had without my sexaholism. Never. And with that, I think I'm supposed to stop. Thanks for letting me share.